0: Well, we have to admit that today's topic is both incomprehensible and exhaustless. It is no less than the eternal God. We will never know all there is to know about the God of heaven. His essence is eternal. His character is far beyond what we could even hope to understand. So why even attempt, you may ask? Well, God has allowed us to know Him by revealing Himself to us through the Bible. That's why it's so important to read this book. Also, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has made the invisible God visible. We see the nature of God in Him. God wants us to know Him. In today's broadcast, speaker Eugene Higgins looks at various aspects of God's character and personality. His omniscience, His omnipotence, His omnipresence, His righteousness, holiness, and perfect judgment his compassion, love, and grace. This is the God with which we all have to do. This is the God who actually invites us all to come to know him personally, to receive his salvation, and then to love and serve him forever. We're sure you will enjoy Mr. Higgins' message today about this awesome God.
1: I'm reading in Deuteronomy chapter 33, where Moses wrote, there is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rides upon the heaven in thy help and in his excellency on the sky. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Now, interestingly enough, while we are familiar with the fact that Moses wrote the first five books of our Bible, he also wrote at least one of the Psalms. And I'm going to read to you a Psalm that Moses wrote. It is Psalm 90. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are Three score years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knows the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. I want to just go over very briefly what we mean by the Trinity. We owe the word Trinity to the brilliant African Christian Quintus Septimus Florence Tertullian. And with a name that long, you will understand why he is generally referred to as just Tertullian. He used the word for a concept that appears everywhere in the Bible, even though the word itself does not occur. So the doctrine of the Trinity is presented this way in the New Testament. There are three simple statements that convey to us what is meant in the Bible by God's triunity. First is this, there is but one God. There are not three gods. There is but one God. Number two, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are spoken of each as God and as having all the attributes of God. So there is one God, just one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons are spoken of as being God. And then finally, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each distinct persons. Now if you say, well, I still don't understand that, join the crowd. Because if you could understand God, he wouldn't be God. He is infinite. He is eternal. But when you have said these three things, you have enunciated the doctrine of the Trinity. That there is just one God, that there is a person called the Father and a person called the Son and a person called the Holy Spirit, and each is spoken of as being God and having all the attributes of God, even though there is just one God, and that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are each distinct persons. The Trinity does not entail three gods in one God or three persons in one person. That would be nonsensical. But there is nothing contradictory in affirming that there are three persons in one God. That is, there are three who's, three persons, in one what? One God. Now again, the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't attempt to explain God. It only explains in an elemental way what God has revealed to us about himself so far. It is something akin to describing an iceberg by just describing the tip of the iceberg. All we're grasping is just a little of what we understand about this infinite and eternal being called God. Now you will notice that the term that is used by Moses is the eternal God. And since this is truth pertaining to the triune God, it gives us a glimpse of the Lord Jesus before he came, a glimpse of the Lord Jesus from eternity to eternity. And so we see that as to his being... As to his being, there is one attribute that is seen in all his thoughts and actions. Please keep that in mind as I very quickly run through just a few things that we have understanding about from the Bible concerning God. There is one attribute that marks all of his dealings and all of his attributes, and that is he is holy. He is holy. Now, God is eternal. Notice the words, from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Generations of humans come and go. God remains. He existed before he began what we call time, before he created what we call matter. He existed eternally. We are dependent on so many things for life, but God is dependent on nothing outside of himself. Moses watched a whole generation of Israelis dying in the desert over a space of 38 to 40 years. And he was deeply impressed with the truth of God's eternality. He spoke about our spending our life so briefly as a tale that can be told in one breath. But he thought about God's everlastingness because God is eternal. In the 1950s, the Encyclopedia Britannica published its 55-volume set, The Great Book's of the Western world. One of the gifted minds behind that series was a gentleman named Mortimer Adler. The opening volume is a compilation of the greatest themes addressed by seminal thinkers during the last two millennia. The longest essay is on God. When Adler was asked why that particular theme merited the lengthiest and longest treatment, he answered without apology, quote, Because more consequences for life follow from this one issue than any other issue you can think of. End of quote. Did you hear what he said? More consequences for life follow from this one issue. What you think about God, whether you think there is a God, and what you think about him. The Bible is presenting this being to us as eternal. But he is also immutable. Closely related to his eternality is his ageless, changeless constancy. He said, I am the Lord. I change not. We change, and we can watch ourselves aging. If you have pictures of when you were younger and compare them now, it can be very frightful how much we change, but God never changes. Hebrews 13 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James, in the first chapter of his epistle, spoke about God, as a being with whom there is no variableness, no changing, neither shadow caused by turning. So he is eternal. He is unchanging. He is immutable. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything actual and possible. He knows everything past, present, and future. He knows everything material and immaterial. And he knows all of that simultaneously, perfectly, and completely. He knows you. He knows you completely, and he knows you unerringly. Solomon, at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, gave voice to that in his prayer. He said, Thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. We don't know everyone more than that. We don't know the hearts of everyone. God knows all. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. The physical creation that scientists and astronomers have studied for millennia is described in the Bible as the work of his fingers. God can do anything that is logically possible. Nothing taxes his power or requires him to exert himself in one instance more than another. If you've watched a weightlifter lifting weights, he might very easily lift a lesser weight. And then when More weights are added. He takes deep breaths and he bends and he exerts himself all the more and he hoists that weight. Nothing calls for God to add more strength. Nothing thwarts God. Nothing is impossible for God if it's logical to be done. When God asked Job questions that ranged over all of the creation, Job seemed to grow smaller and smaller as his impression of what God was like grew larger And larger until finally Job confessed, I know that thou canst do everything. That's omnipotence. I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withheld from thee. And that, of course, is omniscient. God is eternal, God is immutable, God is omniscient, he knows everything, God is omnipotent, he is all powerful, God is omnipresent. Since you and I are physical, finite beings, we are limited to one place at a time. God is spirit, and he fills the universe. Far from other human beings, a woman named Hagar, in the first book of our Bible, Genesis, realized that God was there. And she actually gave him a name. She called him the God of seeing. Thou God, she said, seest me. Because she realized that away out there, far from the haunts of man and the tents where people dwelled, God was there. He is omnipresent. And finally, which brings us full circle back to my opening comments, God is righteous. He is holy. And we should be very thankful that that is the case. If we are speaking about a being who is omnipotent and omniscient, we should be very thankful that he is a being of moral goodness and supreme wisdom. His omnipotence isn't brute force where he forces things to be done the way he wants, right or wrong, because he is a righteous God. His omniscience isn't mere information storage, as if he has no interest in you, just filing away information constantly about what's happening on earth. No, None of his attributes are detached from his holiness and his commitment as a righteous God to your well-being. Someone some time ago gave me a biography of Ivan the Terrible, that awful Russian czar. And, of course, he was sovereign. As far as his kingdom was concerned, he was omnipotent. He could do whatever he wished, and no one could tell him not to. One thing that I found horrifying was that when he would be up for a walk, guarded, of course, by some of his men, his soldiers, if he saw someone and he did not like the person's face... If the person displeased him, then he simply sent one of the soldiers over and had the man beheaded, and then had the head thrown into the road where Ivan was walking. Now, he could do that because he was sovereign. Because, as I have said in this limited sense in his kingdom, his realm, he was omnipotent. What he was not was righteous. And what he was not is certainly what I'm about to tell you about God. Because God is gracious. We've looked at his greatness, but I want you to think about his grace. And whether you're thinking of his greatness or his grace, I can tell you that God, this triune God, is incomparable. As to his dealings with mankind, particularly through this period of time in which we live, there is one quality that marks all that he does, and it is grace. It is undeserved kindness. We are actually fairly insignificant creatures. Yet when Moses wrote his psalm, he not only spoke about God's greatness and his glorious power and how different he is from us and how infinitely beyond us he is, but he spoke about his steadfast love, and that is astounding love. It is astounding because of who he is, as I just mentioned to you. He is the eternal God. He has need of no one and nothing. He's self-existent. He found all that his heart could wish in his beloved Son from eternity. He doesn't need us, He doesn't need to find somewhere to display his love. He doesn't need something from us. But for a reason that I cannot explain to you, other than that this is the character of God, he chose, he chose to set his love on us. He chose to seek our welfare. This is astounding because of what we are. The Lord Jesus told us that sin comes from inside the human heart, comes from us. It's not something external that comes into us, but rather external things will trigger what is already in our hearts. Now, God hates sin. It is the antithesis to his holiness. He will not permit it in his presence. And yet even though you and I are characterized by, marked by sin, this did not turn him away from his love for fallen creatures. You remember the words of John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And you will recall that the Apostle Paul spoke about how personal that was. He said, the Son of God loved me, and he gave himself for me. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that it was at Calvary that God displayed his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I think it is astounding because of how we fell, how we became sinners. It was by willful choice. It was in a foolish attempt to be like God. It was not accidental. It was not an unwitting thing. It wasn't that that Adam became a sinner the way you catch a cold. This was willful, insolent, rebellious, and haughty against God and against his command. And yet, nothing has changed the fact that while we have turned to sin, God has never turned away from us. Now that is abounding grace. Grace because we rejected his counsel and his word. Just as Adam disobeyed God and turned from him, we have turned everyone to his own way. We've ignored God's advice, if I could put it that way. And we should have been left to reap the result of our own foolish decisions. And instead, God is offering salvation to all. Here is how Paul put this grace that I'm telling you about. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor. Charlie Duke is one of the astronauts who walked on the moon. This is what he wrote about his mission. Quote, in 1972 aboard Apollo 16, I saw with my own eyes what is written in the scriptures. Isaiah 40 and 22 says, it is he that sits upon the circle of the earth. And in Job 26, it is written, God hangs the earth upon nothing. Who told Isaiah that the earth was a circle? And how did the writer of Job know that the earth hung on nothing? This is the Lord I love and serve. This is the Lord who transformed my life. This is the Lord who transformed my marriage. I used to say I could live 10,000 years and never have an experience as thrilling as walking on the moon, but the excitement and satisfaction of that walk doesn't begin to compare with my walk with Christ, a walk that lasts forever. Not everyone has the opportunity to walk on the moon But everybody has the opportunity to walk with the sun. It costs billions of dollars to send someone to the moon. But walking with Jesus is free. It is the gift of God. Salvation will bring you into a knowledge of this blessed God because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and coming into this world. Of course, it is grace because when Christ came, we rejected him and we slew him. Peter in his preaching said, that they desired a murderer and slew the Prince of Life. In other words, having murdered the Lord Jesus, we should have been condemned to eternal judgment. Instead, because of God's grace, I will never receive what I deserve. And of course, I will never deserve what I have received. What I deserve is eternal punishment. I will never receive that. What I never deserved is eternal salvation. And on July the 10th, 1966, I receive that as a gift from God. Here are words that will explain that clearly. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is the gift of God based on His grace. He gives it to sinners who do not deserve it. He will give it to you. And if you come to know the Lord Jesus, you will then know His surrounding care. In a world of danger and peril, In mortal bodies living on a planet that has been cursed by sin, you will know the all-encompassing surrounding care of this eternal God. You remember the words of Moses, picturing a refuge as though he is above and below, and everlasting arms underneath us. That's the idea not only of an all-encompassing protection, but of an inexhaustible one, because he says they're everlasting arms. He never tires, he never sleeps, he never slumbers, he never grows weary. He always guards, protects, guides, and secures his own. Lord Jesus likened himself to a shepherd who, finding the lost sheep, puts it on his shoulders and carries it home. Carries it home. He is the one responsible for the safety of that sheep's homecoming. And the moment that a person trusts the Lord Jesus, he is in the hands of a shepherd who has never lost one of his sheep and never will. He said, My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. My Father that gave them me is greater than all, and no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. You will understand now why the book of Revelation pictures the resounding praise that will forever will forever express the gratitude of the hearts of redeemed people. Moses, you will recall, added these words in Deuteronomy, there is none like unto this God, no one like this God. And when you come to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, you will find redeemed men and women surrounding the throne of God and of the Lamb, praising the triune God, the eternal God, for who he is, for what he has done for his grace in doing it, for the precious blood of Christ that enabled it to happen. And they are thanking God that they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God. I hope you will come to know this incomprehensible God. That almost sounds like a contradiction, coming to know someone who can't be known. He can't be fully known because he is God. But he has made himself known through the Lord Jesus. And if you will trust the Savior this night, The Bible says, he that believes on the Son has everlasting life.
0: Yes, in the book of Revelation we read of millions who had come to know God in their lifetime, who were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of those who now are forever in heaven enjoying the presence of God and learning more of Him as the ages roll along. But will you be there? Have you trusted the Savior for the forgiveness of your sins? Don't delay. Only blood-bought ones will be there. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you would like some literature that would help you understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at anchorpointradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Believers in Christ, who are meeting at various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday, as well as other meetings such as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. If you've been challenged by today's message and would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering unto the name of the Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, take a look at our Anchor Point website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the gathering center nearest you. Our Anchor Point messages are also available for listening and download at anchorpointradio.com. My name is Glenn Todd. Thank you once again for listening.